The following message was recorded Sunday, February 18, 2024. This morning the chapel welcomes Pastor Brian Nevins from Calvary Chapel of Northern Kentucky. Pastor Brian shares on how the believer needs to find humility in our conflicts in and outside of marriage. And now, here's Pastor Brian. Well, good morning, everyone. We do bring you blessings from uh, Northern Kentucky. And also, uh, you have a great... I, I also bring you a blessing because um, we have an early flight, so I can't be long-winded. <laughs> um, as David had said, <clears throat> excuse me, we have been so blessed, so honored uh, to be at Seabrook for the last couple of years. And, you know, after 40-some um, years of marriage and 20, a couple of decades at least of being a pastor, uh, I guess they decided we had something worthwhile to share. So um, uh, we, we did that, and we were honored to, to be invited back uh, in 2023. And then um, Pastor Ritt, after um, this last one last October, asked if we would come back and, um, and give you part of what we shared down in that, um, at, uh, at that marriage conference. And so last night, as some of you know, we did uh, um, share part of that, and it was on um, the, uh, basically that the, um, the theme was, uh, if there's no humility, then there's no unity. And that is such an important, such an important aspect of, of marriage, and it's such an important aspect of the body of Christ. And so today, this morning, we're going to be going through um, disagreement or conflict. And our text is uh, James chapter 4. So again, this was originally part of the marriage conference in October. So you're going to hear references to marriage. And so if you are married, then this applies to you. If, if you are considering marriage, this applies to you. But whatever, whatever state, this applies to you. Um, this letter was written to the church. We have adopted it, of course, for the marriage conference. And, and so that's kind of the slant of what we're going to be talking about this morning. But don't disregard it simply because of that. So if you would, please, if you would please stand with me as we continue to worship the Lord through the reading of his word. And we're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. That you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is an enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And again, Lord, we thank you. We praise you as we come before you. 
And we ask, God, that this word would go out mightily, that it would etch into our hearts. And, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for the constant reminder of your love for us. Lord, that, uh, Lord your book is, just, is, is a book of reminding us, God, because we are so forgetful. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. And we praise you in the name of your exalted son, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So even if you, as you heard just then, it comes back to humility. This whole thing comes back to humility. Now, as we were putting together this, uh, the marriage conference, Denise and I, which is always a blessing, an incredible blessing, because it, 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 it causes us to evaluate things that we don't normally think about so much because we just kind of live life. And that's where most of us are. We just kind of live life. And, and so we don't really evaluate things on a purposeful basis. And so whenever you're forced, if you will, to do that, the fruit is amazing if you come at it with a true desire to honor God and honor each other. And so as we're doing this, you know, Denise is bringing, you know, materials into the, into the discussion. And so we heard this podcast from a very well-known and, respect, uh, and respected Christian ministry regarding conflict in marriage. And that's the word they used was conflict. Excuse me, I just lost my notes here. Hang on a second. And, um, and so they made the statement, conflict is neither right nor wrong. But what is most important is how we handle it when we get there. We thought, okay, all right, that sounds not right. There's something, something not, there's something off about that. And I have appreciation for the point that they were making. But I continued to think about it, and I began to discuss this with Denise. And this isn't just a matter of semantics, I, I, though I think... You know, we can certainly give this person that made the statement of the benefit of the doubt. There's, there's an issue that's greater than semantics here because as we get into the actual words themselves that are being used, and words are important, then um, I, I think that there's a, a message in, in that as well. So let's first of all talk about conflict, and that was the word that was used. The definition of conflict is a struggle or a clash between opposing forces it's a battle. It's a state of opposition between ideas, interests, etc. It's a disagreement or controversy, usually a protracted one, meaning it is ongoing and it is long term. So I think that's what was kind of nagging at me when he used the word conflict. You know, we often hear couples say, oh, we love each other. That's just the way we relate. You know, in a church, it may be a situation where you're continually coming against others. So what this person was saying was that conflict is not, or conflict is a no-judgment situation. But conflict is not a no-judgment situation. Conflict is sin. Conflict, by its very definition, is a state of war. In a marriage, it's, it's a war within the four walls of a home. Or it's conflict, it's war within a church. It's a state of sin that greatly affects your church family. It greatly affects your family. And it also may be a situation where only one person is causing the conflict. And so to extend the metaphor here, 
It's an invading army seeking to conquer and control. For the husband, it may be they're trying to gain territory. For the wife, it's a coup. In a church, it may be there's someone seeking to gather others to themselves. You know, they might view themselves as a modern-day Martin Luther with a mandate from God to correct everybody else. It's conflict. The reason we're making such a point here is because, unfortunately, that is the state of many marriages in the church. That's the state of many bodies of Christ. Is they're in conflict, protracted conflict. And again, that comes back to humility. How, are we, how can we deal with this in humility? So let's talk about the, diff the difference between conflict and disagreement. How are those things different? Disagreement is a lack of consensus. Disagreement can be over from everything to, to where to live, to how to educate and train up your children, to the color of the carpets or the walls. You know, ultimately, consensus can be reached through prayer and discussion in humility. But conflict rages on because the intent is not consensus, it's conquering. You know, Denise and I, we were so blessed last year, you know, for, I don't know, 15 years or so, we kept saying, we need to change our kitchen and our dining room. I mean, they were just awful. And we just prayed about it, you know. We were even conflicted, if you will, because we kept saying, well, the Lord's returning soon, and should we be spending this money elsewhere? And, you know, and we just, and finally we just said, well, we could be wrong. He'll forgive us if we're wrong. We're going to do it, right? So we started the process of changing the kitchen and the dining room. It's like, praise the Lord, you know, it just things are going so well. So, but there were decisions that had to be made, you know, and, and so we decided we were going to do this in humility, and especially because this is so very much, you know, a, a point of point of mind for us as we're going through this. Well, this is a test of, you know, because that Bible is such a great thing until you have to apply it. Right. <laughs> so we have this is what we have to do. And it was such a blessing as as we went through that, especially because at the same time, unbeknownst to us, we were booted out of our uh, of our space for our church. And so we're going from sawdust and, and uh, chalk dust in the home to sawdust and chalk dust in the church, you know, and it's just like a lot of decisions to be made, a lot of opportunity for differences, disagreement, and conflict. So how, to, how do we identify conflict versus disagreement or, and differences? So we're going to have a Bible study here and then to spend the last few minutes on the application as we go through James uh, chapter 4. And so he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? The word translated war here is where we get the word polemic, if you've ever heard that term, which is a, a polemic is a speech or a piece of writing expressing a strongly critical attack on or controversial opinion about someone or something. <laughs> So James uses the word here, war, which translates to our word polemic. Strongly critical attack. Fights that he used for, where he says, where do wars and fights come from? Fights is a word for contentions, which is a heated disagreement. So, so he's saying, where are, these, where are these strongly critical attacks coming from? Where are these heated disagreements coming from? 
He's accurately describing among Christians with the terms wars and fights. And often the battles that happen among Christians are bitter and severe. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Different word here used for war than he just used. That's passion. The word war here is passions that disquiet the soul. So this is a war within you. The source of wars and fights among Christians is always the same. There's some root of, cor- of carnality, the internal war within the believer regarding the lusts of the flesh. When you're the one standing in the way of me and satisfying what I want, satisfying my passions, and if you're standing in the way, there's a war on especially when there is such close quarters relationship like marriage, especially when there's such close quarters relationship like churches, you know, where relationships are built and you're not in unity regarding the direction you should be going. No two believers, I'm making this as an absolute firm statement, no two believers who are both walking in the spirit of God can live with wars and fights among themselves. Now, one of the statements that I made uh, when we were actually doing this as part of a marriage conference, and it was important, and I think it applies here, too, is that we're not here to settle who's right or wrong in these decisions. You know, because, you know, because one of the tendencies, of course, in a marriage conference is, well, this is my point of view. This is my spouse's point of view. Who do you think is right? Well, we can't tell you, we can't tell you that. Luke you know, 12, 13, 14 says, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? So we can only make this point. If there's not humility, then the approach is already outside the character of God. If there's not humility, then the approach is already outside of the character of God. (coughs) Jesus is the ultimate in humility. We talked about that quite a bit last night. And that is the definition of humility as being Christ-like. And so whenever we have the flesh involved, it's already outside of the character of God. When we study Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, it should be clear that no one can claim they are receiving this word from God that creates in them a contentious spirit. And the types of desires that lead to conflict are described here in James. Covetous leads to conflict. You lust and don't have. Anger and animosity lead to hatred and conflict. And he uses the word murder. So James is looking back on the Sermon on the Mount here when Jesus also used murder to express more than actual killing, the actual taking of life, but also an inward condition of the heart shown outwardly by that anger when, when he spoke of that in Matthew chapter 5. So Do you bring contention to the relationship because you desperately uh, desire what God has not seen fit to give you? Or perhaps God desires to give it to you, but you've not laid your hand to it. So here's another question. Are you spiritually, emotionally, even physically in some aspects, killing your spouse because of your anger? 
Are you spiritually, emotionally killing your relationships with others in the church? Are you causing discontent in the church body because of your anger, because of your covetousness? This is normally at the heart of the conflict, not getting what you want or think you deserve. James goes on to say, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So this points to the futility of this life, life lived for the desires for pleasure. So not, is it, not only is it a life of conflict, but it's also a fundamentally unsatisfied life. And it's when we're fundamentally unsatisfied, that's when we actually start struggling with things. But when we have the satisfaction of Jesus Christ, when we have the satisfaction of just being filled with the Spirit, when we have the satisfaction of looking at our spouse and saying, I honor you. You are precious to me. I can ask for nothing else. It is the demonic lie that a pursuit of pleasures satisfies the soul. There's always something more to desire to pursue. And when you're denied, if I can continue the analogy of war, that's when the shooting begins. The reason these destructive desires exist among Christians is because they do not seek God for their needs. James says you don't ask. And he reminds us here the great power of prayer and why one may live unnecessarily as a spiritual pauper simply because they don't pray or do not ask when they pray or when we ask God gives us you know, when, when we ask, God is going to give us what we truly satisfy, what will truly satisfy us. Let me say that again. When we ask um, correctly, God gives us what will truly satisfy. So we either don't pray or we selfishly pray. Often because we define our own needs instead of praying to God's will and expecting God to supply them. So these ones, when they did ask that James was talking to, they asked God with purely selfish motives. So we, res we must remember that the purpose... <sighs> Let me try that again. We must remember that the purpose of prayer is not to persuade a reluctant God to do our bidding. The purpose of prayer is to align our will with his and in partnership with him to ask him to accomplish his will on this earth. That's what Jesus gave us when he gave us what we call the Lord's Prayer. I, I, I like to refer to it more as the disciples' prayer, you know, but that's what he was saying. So, you know, we need to ask him to accomplish his will on this earth. David Guzik says spend here, that, that uh, the, word James, uh, the word that James uses here, spend, is the same verb used to describe the wasteful spending of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 14. Destructive desires persist even if we pray because our prayers may be self-centered and self-indulgent. And just to remind you of the scripture that was being used, James said, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Wasteful spending, if you will. That's why it's so important for husbands and wives to pray together in humility and unity, asking for the same things. 
That's why it's so important as the body of Christ for us to pray together in humility and unity, asking for the same things. In verses 4 and 5, James then says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So isn't it interesting that he says, he, he says, adulterers and adulteresses, you know, this is a rebuke presented in Old Testament vocabulary. So God spoke this way in the Old Testament when his people were attracted to some form of idolatry, such as in Jeremiah 3 and Ezekiel 6 and Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 23 in Hosea 3. And so as James saw it here, their covetousness was idolatry. Okay, their covetousness was idolatry, which the Lord also sees as adultery because we have this relationship with the Lord, this spousal relationship, according to Ephesians. And in the Old Testament, God had that spousal type of relationship with Israel. And so idolatry, being unfaithful in worship of the Lord, was tantamount to, to adultery. And it's the same thing here. Whenever we are, uh, whenever we have, because we have that relationship with Jesus, whenever there's anything at all that comes between us and him, any desires at all that comes between us and him, then James rightly uses the term adulterers and adulteresses. It's an unfaithfulness. He goes on to say, do you not know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? So enmity means actively opposed or hostile. James recognizes that we cannot both be friends of this world system in rebellion against God and friends of God at the same time. Even the desire to be a friend, you know, wants to be a friend of the world makes that one actively opposed or hostile to God. So when our desires for the things of the world, then it's a challenge to the Lord. We're saying, Lord, I love you, but you're not sufficient. It is conflict with God. It is a violation of the marital relationship of Christ and his bride. That's why, again, it's adultery or idolatry. So when you have a desire for the things of the world instead of the interest of the person you vowed to cherish, that produces conflict. And we're not talking here that we can't just limit it to how much time and money you spend on, you know, whatever activities that are, you know, that we're allowed to enjoy most certainly golfing, fishing, decorating, drinking, etc. But it, but an empty philosophies that lead to a life outside of the spirit and the word of God. James then goes on to say the spirit who dwells in in us yearns jealously. So the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit has a jealous yearning for our friendship with God. The Spirit will convict the Christian who lives in compromise. And so purposely, the Christian who is in compromise will remain discontent. The Spirit assures us that we will remain discontent. Surrender now to the God who yearns jealously for you with great love. That's the answer. You just you surrender to this Lord 
this God who loves you so greatly. If we think about adultery and adult, uh, uh, you know, and idolatry, think of the inner pain and the torture inside the person who is betrayed by an unfaithful spouse. Who has to reckon with the truth? I'm faithful to them, but they're not faithful to me. This is what the Spirit of God feels regarding our, our world-loving hearts. I am faithful to you, but you're not faithful to me. That's what causes the Holy Spirit to mourn. So in verses 6 through 10, James offers the solutions for strife. In humility, we get right with God. It says he gives more grace. Therefore, he says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He gives more grace. So the same Holy Spirit convicting us of our compromise will also grant us the grace to serve God as we should. This is such an incredible statement. But he gives more grace, which stands in such strong contrast to the previous words. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, sin seeks to enter, grace shuts the door. Sin tries to get the mastery, but grace, which is stronger than sin, resists and will not permit it. Sin gets us down at times, puts its foot on our neck. Grace comes to the rescue. Sin comes up like Noah's flood, but grace rides over the tops of the mountains like the ark. And God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So at the same time, James reminds us that this grace only comes to the humble. Grace and pride are eternal enemies. Pride demands that God bless me in light of my merits, whether real or imagined, but grace will not deal with me on the basis of anything in me, good or bad, but only on the basis of who God is. Again, this idea of conflict is present. When James says that God resists the proud, he has set himself in battle against that proud person. When James says that God resists the proud, God has set himself against that proud person, not just the pride, but the person. Can you imagine God being against you? because of your pride. If it isn't, it isn't as if our humility earns the grace of God. Humility merely puts us in a position to receive the gift that he so freely gives. And so when we get rid of the pride and we humble ourselves before this great God, we're right under where the blessings come out. And that's where we want to stay. It says, therefore, submit to God. So in light of the grace offered to the humble, there's only one thing to do. Submit to God. This means to order yourself under God, to surrender to him as a conquering king and start receiving the benefits of his reign. Now, why would any right-minded person set himself against God instead of submitting to him? Our creator, our savior, our prince of peace. You might think that we're independent and that's the mindset of the age, especially in the Western society. You know, you do you, right? Every outrageous sin we see celebrated today is calculated to scream, look at me. 
You may, you may not be that flagrant, but that spirit may still dwell within you. Look at me. So we may think that we're free and independent, but we all serve somebody. You know, just like that great theologian and philosopher Bob Dylan said, you're going to serve somebody. Either, the God, either God or the devil. One will ultimately be your master, whether you realize it or not. And it is your master that's going to lead you in your marriage. It's your master that's going to lead you in your relationship in the church. It is your master that leads you in the real relationship with others. So who is your master? Is it you or is it God? James goes on to say, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So to solve the problems of carnality and the strife it causes, we have to resist the devil. This means to stand against the devil's deceptions and his efforts to intimidate. So do you want conflict with God, war with God, or do you want conflict or war with the devil? If you have conflict with the devil, you have the power and the promises of God in your arsenal. As we resist the devil in the authority of Jesus, I'm not talking about rebuking the devil. We don't rebuke the devil. We can't rebuke the devil. Even Michael didn't rebuke the devil. We resist the devil in the authority of Jesus. He were, we are promised that he will flee from us. So the enemy comes against us, and we don't stand there and stand against the, uh, the, uh, the enemy. We step behind Jesus. Lord, rebuke you. We resist the devil. And when we do that in the authority of Jesus, he's, we are promised that he will flee from us. He'll return, seeking better opportunity, which is why in humility before the Lord and in wisdom, we're to guard our hearts always. James goes on to say, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So the call to draw near to God is both an invitation and a promise. It's no good to submit to God's authority and to resist the devil's attack and then fail to draw near to God. So we have it as a promise. God will draw near to us as we draw near to him. It's God's invitation to us to come into a safe place, a place of protection. But it also speaks to our free will. We have the desire, the protection. We have to desire that protection instead of being in battle or under the influence of the enemy. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So there's a sense of urgency here. And it isn't that God is hidden and can only be found now, but it's that he can only be found when our hearts are inclined to look for him. By the way, this is a quote from David Guzik. And that inclination itself is a gift from God. We must receive the gift and make it the most of it while we have it. So that means we draw near to the Lord in worship and praise and prayer. It means we draw near by asking his counsel, by praying and praying according to his will. It means drawing near and enjoying communion with God. It means to draw near in the general course and tenor of your life. He then goes on to say, cleanse your minds, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, lament and mourn and weep. So as we draw near to God, 
we will be convicted of our sin. He's speaking here, of course, of the hardened sinner, somebody who is so entrenched in their sin and in their arrogance. And James says, just cleanse your minds, uh, cleanse your hands, excuse me, purify your hearts, lament, mourn, and weep. So we lament and mourn and weep as appropriate under the conviction of sin. And when we do that, we are compelled to find cleansing at the cross. James then says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. As we come as sinners before the holy God, we appropriately humble ourselves before him, and then he will lift us up. Because God resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble, and grace, the unmerited favor of God, always lifts us up. So how do we apply all this? In this passage, James has powerfully described pride as a sin. The very thing which, which the world would feed us with, pride, self-pride, James powerfully describes as sin. He speaks on how pride sets us against God. It sets us in conflict with God. He speaks on how pride produces conflict. It produces wars within ourselves internally, and it produces wars in our relationships. He speaks on both the duty and the blessing of repentance, which requires humility. So if there's conflict in your marriage, there's only one solution, and that's to humble yourself before God, resist the devil and all his temptations, his lies and his false promises. If there's conflict in, in the body of Christ, if there is conflict that you have with somebody within this church or even in the body of Christ at large, there's only one solution, and that's to humble yourself before God, resist the devil, all his temptations, lies and false promises. Submit yourself to God, declaring surrender in this war and drawing near to him. Let's talk about how conflict affects intimacy. And this is on the marriage side, of course. But again, in so many aspects, it applies to our relationship with each other. Because intimacy isn't about, isn't physical intimacy. Um, it doesn't begin with physical intimacy. And certainly in marriage, that's a part of it. But I can tell you, we will never have unity in a marriage, we'll never have unity in a family, we will never have unity in a body until we have humility. And it greatly affects our intimacy with one another. So if you're in conflict with people in the body of Christ, actively you're holding bitterness or envy or covetousness, you're not praying with others, you're not joining in worship or any of those things that bring glory to God and health to the soul. In marriage, of course, it's going to affect physical intimacy. But just as much, you'll not have the joy of your marriage that God intended. God intended such great joy in our marriage. And when there's conflict, there is no joy. And it does affect how you approach each other physically. Denise mentioned last night that um, we've made it just a longstanding agreement <clears throat> that our bedroom is a sanctuary. 
and not just because of the physical aspect of things, but because with everything that's going on in the world, all the decisions have to be made. And of course, because of our position in ministry, there's always something to talk about. There's always something to decide on. There's always something that needs to be discussed. And so we decided a long time ago, our bedroom is a sanctuary. It's you and me. The whole world disappears. It's, it's gone. Unless it blows up, I'm not going to know that the world exists. And because of that, it produces a closeness between Denise and I. And it's a joy. And so we can just be as close and as intimate. I'm not talking sexually either. Just as close and as intimate as, as anything because it's just you and me, babe. There's no conflict. And there's a remembrance of why we came together in the first place. We um, shared in our testimony two, um, two marriage conferences ago and we shared about how anger affected um, our relationship prior to our salvation. Because we've been, um, we often describe our, our marriages as uh, having one wedding day, but two marriages. Because there was, um, well, three years prior to our, our getting married when we were engaged, and then eight years of marriage, just no salvation at all complete selfishness. And then, wow, these last, I don't know how many years, 30 some years of being with the Lord and just a completely different marriage, a completely different life. But there was a lot of anger in our marriage prior to the Lord. And for a few years afterwards, of course, it affected the intimacy of the heart of our heart. It affected our physical intimacy as well because of that anger. We shared quite openly about, about my unfaithfulness during that time, adultery during that time, as well as alcohol problems, drug problems, just a complete lack of engagement in our marriage. Though I would tell you without a doubt that I loved her. So let's back up for a couple of years. Our son Daniel was born. Denise began growing up a bit, began maturing, realizing that there was another life here that needed to be dealt with, not just ours. Um, I didn't grow up. And so Denise effectively became a single mom with another child in the house. And bitterness became anger. The tipping point was when we took our six-month-old to a son, uh, our six-month-old son to a party, where I continued to drink and do drugs, and ignored Denise and our son, where they're sitting in the, ba on, in, the, in, the, in the bedroom, just trying to stay away from it all, from all these very ungodly people. That bitterness became anger. That anger became hatred, and our distance increased. Physical, emotional intimacy suffered. There were good days, there were bad days. 
but clearly suffered. During all that time, we kept up a facade with our family and friends. There's absolutely nobody in our family knew that we were this close to divorce. Nobody. Now, distance helped because they lived up in the Midwest. We were down in Florida. But, you know, we didn't get on the phone and tell anybody during visits. We were just fine, and so it was well hidden. Salvation in April of 1990, a complete turnaround. I mean, a one 80. Things were on a great track. Intimacy returned on many levels. We began to see things in each other that were missed before. I began to realize how precious this woman was. We were getting into the word. We were following Jesus with our whole hearts. I mean, we just jumped into it. We still dealt with problems, but we had a different outlook. We had solutions. One and a half years later, after the Lord was pounding on my heart for a year, you have to confess the things that you've done. It's like, Lord, you've got to be kidding me. Things are going so well. She doesn't have a clue as to what happened, how unfaithful I was. You, I, there's just no way. Why would I do that? But I confessed. A year of the Lord's hand upon me, and I finally confessed. But we had the foundation of the Lord. And so this upward momentum, life is great, is shattered. Complete and total dive. She now had to work through this renewed anger, and it's still fresh this renewed bitterness, this renewed hatred. But the Lord sustained her in being our firm foundation. The intimacy suffered once again, the emotional intimacy, the physical intimacy, it suffered once again. You know, there wasn't a lot of hand-holding even. There wasn't a lot of hugging and kissing. There was, there was distance. And it played on so many fears and doubts that she already had had from our prior relationship, but because of the Lord's faithfulness and my real repentance, which was shown in my actions, that trust was being rebuilt. But it took several years. We knew we had to give no place to the devil, even though we were still at odds. And so during this time also, during this time of rebuilding our relationship, during this time of wondering, you know, where this marriage is going to go, even with the Lord in the middle of things. The Lord said, it's time to leave Florida and move to the Midwest. So not only did she have to trust the Lord, she had to trust her husband who had just confessed how unfaithful he was to uproot our family and take us somewhere else. She had to trust that this marriage was going to stay put. And that was because of the Lord that she was able to do that. And because the Lord had given me that promise that we would get through this as well. Now, because of our desire for complete unity and intimacy of heart and soul and mind and body, we resist conflict. 
in our relationship. We absolutely resist. It will not stand in our house. We still have differences, but they're quickly resolved. And this requires us to humble ourselves before God and each other. From our story, it's clear that conflict was the result of sin. Your story is different, but if you are having conflict with each other, the source and the result is the same. Conflict comes from sin. Conflict is avoidable, but differences are not. So even when desiring to have a mission mindset in your marriage and your, and your church differences, things will, differences will occur. And so we are striving for unity here, not uniformity, because we are different and we need to be different. You catch that? We are striving for unity, not uniformity, because we are different and we need to be different. Differences come from different perspectives. It comes from different life circumstances that has taught us. And, and those perspectives will change with roles, with age. They're going to change with circumstances. Even one flesh has multiple parts. Paul used that so brilliantly in Corinthians to talk about the body as he used the physical body as an analogy. There are very different uses and aspects even one flesh has multiple parts, but how is it handled in a godly fashion? I would encourage you to write this down. How are differences handled in a godly fashion? First of all, keep it humble. Proverbs 18, 19. A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a castle. A brother, is offended, a, a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a castle. When your differences become strongholds, then mere differences become contentions. When your differences become strongholds, then mere differences become contentions. But when you're willing to humble yourselves before each other, then the bars come down. So keep it humble. Keep it gentle. Proverbs 15, verse 1 and 18. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. A soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. Dwayne Garrett says this, the ability to avert needless quarreling and to live in harmony with others is a virtue of wisdom. Many conflicts arise, not because the issues separating the parties are so great, but because of the temperaments people bring to a confrontation. So keep it humble, keep it gentle, keep it private. Proverbs 27:15, my wife's favorite verse, a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. I tell her that all the time. We're not necessarily talking about nagging. And it's not limited to that, but, but one who is antisocial, 
and this applies to men just as it does much as to women. Uh, you know, the, 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 the comparison is there, but, but this is not limited to one sex, okay? It's one who is antisocial and stirs up discord. So this speaks of a leaky roof, you know, and a leaky roof, if you ever had a leaky roof, you know that it brings damage and perhaps even ruin to your house. And that's what they're saying is this, so this antisocial behavior, it stirs up discord and it's just like bringing ruin into your house. Opposite of that is a prudent person who deals well with everything, even in disagreement, you know. Direct application, are, ask yourself, do you put your husband or your wife down publicly? Do you put your husband or your wife down in front of your children? Do you put each other down publicly in the body of Christ? Are you asking for prayer when it's really an opportunity for gossip instead of entrusting the issue with a trusted confidant? You know, are you telling on your husband or are you telling on your wife in the matter of, we need prayer? But let me tell you why. And for the next 10 minutes, I'm going to tell you why. Nothing joyful, always complaining. Our differences have to be enjoyed, celebrated, and integrated. And that can only be done when we approach marriage and when we, when we approach community with each other in a Christ-like fashion, which again starts with humility. Ephesians 5, 20 and 21 says, giving thanks for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. As a husband and wife, we have a symbiotic relationship, you know, like the bee and the flowers, you know, they need each other. Like the clownfish and the sea anemone, they need each other. The Lord uses differences like living stones. 1 Peter 2.5 says, you also, as living stones, are being built up to a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When the temple was built and when most, when most buildings were built during that time, they didn't use mortar. They simply used these large blocks, right? And so they would come together. And in, as anybody knows, you get a, a, a building of any height at all and through, just through, through shifts in the, in, the, in the ground, you know, especially in a place like Israel where it's sandy and rocky, you know, there's going to be shifts. And also the wind is going to have an effect and it's going to push the building. And so there's, it, it moves imperceptibly, but it moves. When those stones were put together, there was a gap. And there were certainly, and they, since they weren't hewn stones, you know, they weren't carved or cut. There were imperfections against them. There were, you know, there were differences in the, in the way that they met up with each other. And so as they're moving against each other, what do you think is going to happen? They're going to grind against each other and they're going to smooth out. It would get to the point today where you, if you come up, if you can approach any of those walls, like on the, the Western wall uh, where the temple was, you can't even stick a penknife in there because they are so close together. We are living stones 
being built up in a spiritual house, rubbing against each other and just, just sanding away the differences. So we are so close. There's no room for the enemy at all. There's nothing that can get between us. But we're different stones. That doesn't change. We are rubbing up against each other to get closer. An ongoing evaluation of our own relationship and the ongoing difference between Denise and I, in this case, and the joy that we have in our church family. We have... We definitely have differences. We definitely have contentions in our church family. But the desire is to have humility with each other and to get closer and closer as a spiritual house, living stones. And so there's a constant need for evaluation about how we go about these things. Some of the differences between Denise and I is that, you know, she has an overwhelming need to know things. Right. She is by nature. And if any of you have met my wife, she's a mother. She is a mother to all. <laughs> and, it, you know, and so there are things like I, I'm I'm about as absent minded as a person can be. I, I just like I'm clueless. Just I'm telling you, I'm clueless. We can be driving along, and this is probably the, the better example. We'll be driving along, and we're talking, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm right past the exit. And if she, and if she goes, or if we're approaching the exit, and she goes, Brian, you know, there's the exit. I go, I know! <laughs> and when she doesn't, and I pass it, I'll look at her like, well... You know, she'll ask me, okay, do you have your keys? Do you have your, your, your glasses? Do you, you know, and, you just, and I'll go, yes. And then I'll check my pocket to make sure I've got my glasses. <laughs> she has a need to know. I have a need to work independently. There's a lot of things that come across my desk. There's a lot of things that come in, you know, that come in in conversation. That just because, number one, of who I am, and number two, because of my responsibilities as a pastor, I have an obligation to privacy. And sometimes she's like, yeah, I really want to know what's going on. And I go, yeah, I really can't deck it. And so we have to work through those kind of things, you know. Um, when discussing personal issues, We've had to come to, uh, you know, the thing, you know, especially when she was working and I was working and she'd come home and just kind of lay this stuff, you know, just like, this is going on and that's going on and, and there's some frustration. And aren't we all, you know, on some level fixers? Well, you ought to do this. You ought to do that. Have you considered this? Have you done this? And finally, we started looking at each other going, am I listening to listen or am I listening to fix? And a lot of times she'd say, well, I really want your opinion. But a lot of times she'd say, no, I just need an ear. And so we had to work through those issues, just those interpersonal kind of things because of the differences of who we are. 
with a three, within a three-year period, we've had to work through some major changes. Denise retired. She retired specifically so she could homeschool our grandson because that was a commitment that we made that we were not, if, we, if we, anything within our power, that child was not gonna go into the hellhole that is public education. I don't remember who said it first, but it said, uh, oh, I think it was Vodibakum said, you know, we send our kids off to Rome and we are surprised when they come back as Romans. It's not going to happen. So I had a very unplanned retirement. I was, I was bivocational for, I don't know, 20 some odd years as a pastor. And then I worked, I worked as a bank so I could prove that, yes, even Christians can work at banks. And, um, and that was a very unplanned retirement from corporate life. Praise the Lord. They decided that they didn't want me about the time that I decided I didn't want them. So they paid me to go away. And... Um, <laughs> So, you know, those are major changes in our life, you know, and, you know, thank God that, that our, um, our identities were not wrapped up in what we did. Our identities were wrapped up in Jesus. And so, you know, we didn't lose anything by leaving the, 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 um, the jobs that we had, but it was still adjustments. You know, again, we talked about this planned kitchen and dining room model, you know, and there was incredible joy when we, when we got to do those things together. Think about this. And guys, I don't know, maybe I'm speaking a foreign language to you, but I really enjoyed shopping with my wife. <laughs> because I saw it as a future activity. It was like, we are investing in something which says we're going to be together. And so there were differences that had to be made. But we, again, if, when we approach it with humility and we approach it with the fact that each one of these, you know, we each have an opinion and we can come to a, to a, a um, consensus. It was a joy. It really was a joy. It became tiresome, of course. But we just desired to make this a joyful thing. The unplanned move of the church, that was really just like, man, that was incredible. We said, no, we, we've got to, we have to approach this knowing that we have an opportunity to honor God before the congregation. So in each of these things, we had to work through our different perspectives in humility and unity of purpose. That came from 40-some-odd years of hard living. That came from 30 years of just being devoted to the Word of God. It wasn't easy, and there are still some times that we don't get it right. But we are enjoying the fruit of our differences while avoiding the damaging conflict that comes from the enemies of our souls. In the prior chapter, and I'll close with this. In the prior chapter, in just rejoicing in the differences between Denise and I, integrating the differences between Denise and I, We ad adopted, if you will, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, and we call that our grid for life. And so whenever we have a decision to make, we walk through James 3, 13 through 18, so we can evaluate exactly what it is 
that we're doing. And if you read that and then you go into what we just read in chapter four, we go, oh my gosh, it makes sense. Because here he's saying, this is how you do things. But when you don't do this, why are, the, why are there wars amongst you? So who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every, every, every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Lord, we desire more than anything else to have your peace, to have your grace. And Lord, you said that you resist the proud, not just the pride, but the proud person, but you give grace to the humble. And so, Lord, we just keep coming back to that, Lord, just the need for humility, the need to be more and more Christ-like. Lord, in our marriage, in the body, Lord, in, in everything that we do, we want to proclaim your goodness. We want to proclaim your grace. We want to proclaim how great you are by the way that we live. Let us desire no other thing than you and what it comes from your good hand so that there is no differences between us, no contentions between us that has arised out of sin. And we thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who yearns jealously for us. We thank you for your word, God, that we can continue to look at it as a mirror but even as James says, let us not be like that person who looks in the mirror and then walking away forgetting what we look like. But Lord, to let this be just written on our hearts. We thank you, Lord. I praise you. I thank you for the gift of marriage. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us um, spouses that are so different from us that we might be completed in those differences. And Lord, you designed it that way from the very beginning. You created Adam from the dust and you created Eve from Adam's side. Lord, you created those differences. You created us different physically. You created us different from in, in, our, in our capacities, Lord. Regardless of what the world would tell us, we know the truth. And so, Lord, we thank you again for the differences between men and women. We thank you for the gift of marriage and how you complete us with each other when you are in that marriage. And so we, I just pray a blessing upon the, the marriages here and ask God that they, uh, that they would be a, have a unity of mission and ministry and that there, there would be a recognition that, that our marriages are to glorify you. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stay here for a second. Darren, you have... Okay, good. Thank you. So appreciate you coming. 
and sharing that with us. That was, that was wonderful. Uh, I, takeaways, at least that I got from that, when you start thinking about humility and pride, and they're, they're foes. Yeah, they're, they're enemies with each other. And, and the fact that, you know, the, if you go into something and you're not humble about it, you have no possibility of representing the character of Christ. It's impossible. And, and if you go into it with pride, not only are you setting yourself against the person you're having a disagreement with, you're setting yourself against God. That was huge. That was huge. Uh, so anyways, I really, really appreciate you coming out. It was just a wonderful time. We've had a wonderful week with them. And they're going to be um, heading down to Merritt Island, Florida, for a pastor's conference down there. So we just want to uh, give you a blessing for that. And pray over you and say, hey, Lord, just... Thank you for listening to this message from Community Chapel of Greenville. For more information and to find more messages like this, please visit to www.ccgreenville.org. It is our desire to see our Lord high and lifted up, and to see His people grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.